The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone again. So remember that weeks two, four, six, and eight will have small groups. So the last 20 minutes tonight, both those of you here in the room, those of you online, um, will have small groups of three or four people. And uh, part of the discipline of being in the Buddhist Studies program is to hear and listen from those in your small group, but also to share some of the learnings from your practice, where you find you're bumping up against patterns of ignorance, doubt, yeah, normalizing what it is to be a human being interested in the teachings of the Buddha and the practices what's being learned, what's challenging, what questions there are. And hopefully you saw, I sent out um, about five days ago some reflections that I brought up last Monday, the first week of our class. And one of them was just to explore harmonizing, just to have that intention. Okay, I'm going to this business meeting or I'm going to hang out with my lover or I'm going to and I'm going to use this theme. This is uh, an important part of meditation practice, daily life and formal sitting time, where we have a particular Dharma theme and we're keeping it in mind. And like the theme of non-harming or harmonizing, or there's different ways and you, you know, you're gonna have to language it in different ways until your direct sense of what this training is about, you become somewhat independent of the word, whether you use sila or non-harming, or a sense of feeling responsible for the totality of the moment. And the key is, when you practice, uh, understand that whatever the word, whatever the idea is, it's turning the attention to the present moment. So the idea, like the word sila, or the word harmonizing, or the words, you know, feeling responsible for the well-being of myself and all others. That that, can those words actually illuminate the moment, or does it take my mind into mental proliferation? And so we're responsible for using the teachings, the languaging of the teachings, in ways that turn the attention to the actuality of this moment. Because that's, that's where harmony happens. <laughs> it isn't an idea. And this is more subtle than a lot of us may understand. It's very possible to be a long-time practitioner, but be mostly in our ideas of the practice. And that may be even for those of you who sit regularly, like every day because it's not always that clear to us the difference between thinking about stuff and relating directly to the moment. Because our ideas, the construction that our ideas that our thinking constructs looks a lot like reality. <laughs> That's the point, right? And, uh, and we're more used to that 
Because to uncover that moral sensitivity that I talked about week one, it's uh, it only that sensitivity is only here in the moment directly, right? Where it's a felt sense. Like if I do something that's really skillful, harmonizing, and I want to, because I care, right? We're tracking our experience and we're using that direct moral sense. Like, how's that feel? What's left over? What's reverberating? And we might feel a little that reverberation of, oh, oh, this is the feeling of non-remorse. My heart doesn't feel weighed down like it does when I'm haunted by having done something that struck the heart as being not so helpful, not so good. Oh, it's good to know that that was, that the reverberation is light or maybe even traceless, clean. Heart is unburdened, not haunted. I felt that, you know, so interesting when my dad died, my mother had died about a year and a half before. My mother had Alzheimer's for a long time. We kept her at home. She, my dad did most of the work and we brought, you know, hired people to help take care of her. And, uh, you know, she was the mother of seven kids and, you know, it's not easy being a human being and it's not easy being a woman at that generation especially. and and other sort of complicating factors. So when, I, I always tell myself the story that she really uh, appreciated, even though in the later years of Alzheimer's, she was not communicating in any way, really, but uh, that she appreciated all the care. And, uh, but anyway, the, the point I'm making, it was, you know, the family, it was a lot to take care of her. And then my dad, the last year and a half of his life. And then I just remember feeling like having imperfectly supported my parents in their old age and in the dying process for both of them. I just noticed right away, right there with the grief, you know, at the memorial service and, you know, all the stuff that happens. I just remember feeling really that lightness of non-remorse, like, and, and both personally and collectively, my siblings and I, that, that we did pretty well being there for our parents. And I didn't feel, I don't feel a lot of regret or remorse about that. So part of what we're doing, because you know how we would almost always go towards like the places where there was some little or big moral lapse and get interested in like the reverberations of regret and remorse and, you know, and often then that, you know, the mind not being fully wise in moments takes it personally because regret, remorse is just information. Honey, that didn't work so well. You know, it's just raw data, but we personalize it, then it's shame and guilt and, you know, other unwholesome uh, 
habits of our mind. But, but it's actually really important to get to know that. And the opposite of non-regret, non-remorse, which we tend to be mostly oblivious. Because there are a lot of things we do where we didn't dig a hole for ourselves and others. You know, we didn't cause or set emotion harm, right? Probably, even if we did a few stupid things today, there's probably a lot we did pretty well. But it's just interesting that we somehow unconsciously don't feel like that's worthy of being attentive to. And so in this course, you know, let's really um, set up ways that make sense for you to be interested in the experience of non-remorse. And you could just, like almost like a, a moral inventory at some point during the day, even if it's just in your bed before you fall asleep, and just sort of go through the schedule of the day and just ask, you know, how's the feeling? Like when I remember that hour, anything left over, anything still reverberating, what's, what does that feel like? Can I relate to that as raw data? Just like information. Oh yeah, because it, it's really, it's like the pure data of it is when the mind relates like this, thinks like this, speaks like this, acts like this, then there's this leftover feeling. Right? There's no interpretation, it's just that correlation, like when there's a human being with this kind of personality who relates in this kind of situation in this way, then seven hours later, there's this feeling that's like this. So we're not telling ourselves a story, we're just noticing. And then the question is, then get interested, like, even if you don't have a clue, what do I do with this remorse? Let's say there's a little remorse, or let's say there's a nice, light, clean feeling, like traceless, you know, not being haunted in any way. What do we do with that? And it's, in a way, it's just enough to connect the dots, to, that's the discernment, because it changes us. If we don't connect the dots, we can keep doing what we've done, keep getting the same results, but no learning. And this is how mindful awareness, especially on this level of moral sensitivity, I mean, it's basically understanding that skillful, unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome, it's lawful, it can be read. We just have to, the mind just needs to be present. And having read it, having discerned, you know, the causality of skillfulness and unskillfulness, the heart has changed. And we learn from our mistakes being unskillful as well as times of being skillful. It changes us. And, you know, it, it would be sort of interesting to have a contest like, Try not to change, like track, cultivate moral sensitivity, track 
experience in terms of what's left over and see if you cannot be changed by that. And we can do this more imperfectly observing others too, our friends, especially people we're close to. Because we see how they're interacting, we can sense imperfectly their attitude, their motivation, the quality of their intentions to some degree, and we see what gets set in motion in their lives, in their heart. Oh. Because the whole point, it doesn't really work when morality is imposed from the outside. It only works when we, you know, we realize, oh, this is really helpful. <laughs> you know, this is, I need this understanding, this deepening of moral sensitivity. There's really no, like if we're compassion, if, if, if we value compassion, but don't want to direct the attention in this way, like to really get interested in what's skillful and unskillful, like how I relate to money, or how I relate to media, or how I relate to food, or how I relate to sex, or how I relate to, you know, these major parts of being a human being, we're not really compassionate. Because compassion is a very earthy and grounded and functional response to suffering. And if it, and, and compassion's willing to do whatever helps, right? And what helps is to get interested in what's skillful and unskillful. Like, and the way we do that is we feel into the sensitive heart, the morally sensitive heart, meaning we listen, we feel for remorse and regret. And we listen and we feel for the absence of regret and remorse. Oh. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein, one of my important teachers, tells a funny story practicing in Burma with Saida Upandita, and he was feeling a little, I forget exactly, stagnant or stuck in his practice. And Saida gave him some very traditional instructions that you know, for Joseph just ended up being initially a cause for, you know, guilt. But Saida says, said something like, uh, reflect on your sila. <laughs> you know, if someone tells us, an authority figure tells us, you should reflect on your sila, what do we do? We immediately think, okay, oh yeah, I looked at that website, I should have looked at that website. <laughs> You know, or I, you know, did this, or I did that. But what he meant, what Saida meant, this Burmese monk, was you should be, we should be able to sense not just the mistakes we've made, but all the mistakes we didn't make. I mean, probably if you're in, your, if you're in this room right now, or on Zoom right now, <laughs> You're probably one of those people, you know, who dodged a lot of bullets today, just in what, what we could have done but didn't do. And uh, I'll send this article with some other study resources for this uh, next couple of weeks. This is an article by Ajahn Jayasaro. He's one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah uh, 
tradition or lineage, this Thai forest tradition. He's mostly stayed in Thailand since he went over decades ago. He's been a monk for probably getting close to 40 years now. Um, but he, in this article that you can read if you want, it's called The Beauty of Sila. You can even Google it tonight. I'll send it out tomorrow, but The Beauty of Sila by Ajahn Jayasaro. He, he uses this, uh, some of you know about this um, idea in uh, especially Asian painting of negative space, but it's used in a lot of, like I know, Wynn is a choreographer and they use that also in, in composition and dance. Like just to be aware, not the activity on the stage, but the places where there's no activity or not where the brush stroke is, but the significance of the brush stroke depends on the relative, the space where there is no ink, right? And he uses this in a really useful way to think about sila. You know, the simplicity, like all the things we didn't do, that the, the space that is empty of remorse, empty of regret, that could have had regret and remorse, but is empty. And to cultivate um, a sensitivity so it's recognized. And, and you can say, see, for those of you who've like worked with emptiness and just uh, even the um, boundless consciousness space, these are some meditative objects that we use from time to time. And you can see how this is similar. Because it isn't so much that we become something by cultivating non-harming, we become empty of remorse. You know, what, what the Buddha calls, I think I mentioned this last week, the bliss of blamelessness or the happiness of non-remorse. It's about what's not there. That lightness, that freedom from entanglement, the entanglement of remorse and regret and, you know, unless we're perfect, it's going to trigger sh some shame and guilt or even worse, what is a trigger when we get remorse? With this amazing production studio, this is something, this is a real highlight, and you might even bring it up in your small group if you can think of it, but start paying attention to how clever, how sophisticated, how brilliant the mind is in rationalizing our unskillful behavior. And it's, uh, it's not even like, we're not doing it consciously, there's a, the yucky feeling of remorse, and the mind semi-consciously doesn't like it, of course, and so it goes to work. What can I tell myself that rationalizes why I did what I did, so I don't have to feel the remorse for what I did? It doesn't really work, because the morally sensitive heart still senses what it felt like. Like, this is the thing, when we, you know, when we do something, the other article I'll send out is uh, written by a friend of mine, Lynn, um, and she has this great blog on WordPress, 
what is it, The Buddha's Advice to Lay People, I think is the title of her blog on WordPress. And she has this nice article that she wrote on harmlessness. But she, she has this great instruction like, you know, when there's a spider, you know, if you're going to get rid of that spider, if that's what you do, I'm not saying you should do that, better to get it outside than to kill it. But really be interested in your, like, what happens when you kill a spider? Don't just tell yourself it's okay to do it. Find out what happens when I do it. And this is true for all of these heavy or not so heavy moral issues that exist for us human beings. What is left over when I do it? And, and sometimes we don't have a choice. You know, if you're a farmer and even an organic farmer and your crops are, you know, withering and you're going to lose the farm and people depend on your food and, you know, there might be this sort of like no perfect way out. But still we really, we don't want to defend the heart with a rationalization we we can't figure out the moral implication, but we can feel it. And often it's mixed, you know? It's, it's hard <laughs> to be a human being and to not step on toes and to not cause harm. And we shouldn't tell ourselves, oh, I shouldn't feel badly because there's no other way to do that. Oh. This is what it feels like. And so part of cultivating a moral sensitivity is to learn to stop telling ourselves how I should feel and to get interested in how we do feel. What's the feeling? What's that feel like? And this is the thing about how our minds work, you know, with imagination. If we did something, we can remember it, we can reimagine it, and we'll get a little bit again, that feeling, what's left over. And I mentioned this last week, and this could come up in your small groups too, you know, like the, just, I joked, but you know, you could do it with a partner or a friend, to just, you know, somebody you trust, just to say something to them about a moral lapse, someplace in your life, something you said or thought or did that feels impactful in your heart. And it's just really interesting to look at like, like now we're talking about a trusted friend. Why is it so hard for me to admit that to that person? Like, what's really going on? What am I afraid of? Because whatever it is, I get to decide what I did. You know, so it's not like... And it, I already did it. <laughs> it already happened. Right? And so it, it kind of... The reason I'm bringing that up, it, it sort of reveals back to us how... Um, that difference between the pain of remorse and the shame or guilt. Like, that's me. 
as opposed to no, it's a feeling. It's information. And that information has to be digested. It has to be felt into and included, lived with. But we don't have to do what we tend to do, which is think it's me who is bad. So those are some of the things. And then the other thing I wanted to just bring up as a, just another frame to help us study sila these next number of weeks, and we can work with it all the way through, because in the upcoming weeks, we'll just go through the five precepts. So next week, week three, we'll really look at the first pre precept of undertaking the training to refrain from harming. And the articles, uh, both Ajahn Jayasaro's, but especially Lynn Kelly's article on harmlessness, um, will really just illuminate what the Buddha said around non-harming. And you might find it kind of provocative. You know, some of the Buddhist teachings on karma seem a little cookie-cutter-ish. That is a phrase. But, but just let it in and just notice what your mind does when you're reading some of those, like, when you do this, you get that kind of stuff that's there in some of the, uh, in some of the suttas. But... One thing I really like, and I learned this from Gil Fronstahl, but other people talk about this as well, it's, it's really just a, a reflection that comes out of the suttas, the Buddhist teachings. Uh, just different, I think of it as three frequencies of working with sila. The most obvious in the way the precepts are written, it's really on this level of restraint, like having a good set of breaks. So if I see that I'm going in a direction that life has taught me causes myself and others harm, I, at the, in this moment, there's nothing I can do about the force of habit. Because that conditioned habit is coming out of the past. The momentum of that habit is already the momentum of that habit. So the question is, when there is a real force taking me in a particular direction, then I might need a counterweight to that force. You know, basically that, no, you're not. No, you're not gonna do that. You know, so that moral force of restraint, that capacity to refrain from doing something that we're inclined to do. And where does that force come from? So that's the obvious, you know, that's the, most gross level of sila, but we want, obviously we need that, because especially if you have a lot of roughness in your personality, the, the word that's sometimes translated as harmlessness is, it, it, it's real visceral, it's like to not strike out, to not hit, <laughs> you know, to refrain from hitting, to refrain from striking out, and we sort of feel that way, like, we're on a phone call with some consumer line, you know, and it's just like, you don't, nowadays you can't even tell if it's a real person or not, you know, and it's just, you can, you just get the sense they really want you to hang up. That's their strategy. What can I do to make this person go away? Not, what can I do to solve this person's problem? And what do you want to do? What does the heart want to do? You really want to hit somebody, right? 
you want to say something to somebody or hit them or or you want to like get even and people do this it's like I'm going to keep calling that number I'm going to tie it up and that corporation worth billions of dollars it's going to go bankrupt because <laughs> <laughs> like but that's we if we could we'd really do it like if we could somehow pull the plug on that corporation and get even we really would want to do it isn't that right so we want to see and be honest about that force and then like what because I care just like a good teacher a good parent I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep that unwholesome force from being unwholesome just like a parent might grab a kid to keep him from running into the street or the Buddha said this you know uh, to somebody who was kind of being a little argumentative about this point. He says, well, if your young daughter got a stick caught in her mouth, would you get in there with your finger and grab it and pull it out, even if it cut her gums? And this was like a prince or a king, I forget. And the person said, yeah, I would do that. And the Buddha says, just so. You know, sometimes what I say to people really hurts, but that doesn't mean it isn't good medicine. Right? And this is true with our friends and families and and just in society, speaking truth to power sometimes creates a lot of sparks and causes some pain. But that doesn't mean the motivation and uh, yeah, just the quality of the mind behind it could be real love. So there's this grosser part of restraint or refraining and then there's the sort of more positive end where we're really inspired around the idea and the activity of generosity. We're really inspired about compassion. We're really inspired about being friendly, being gentle, being sensitive. So there's sort of the positive and that, that can be, that can prevent so many of these strong, unwholesome habits from even getting established in the mind. If we're living with the Brahma-Viharas, loving-kindness all day long, it's suppressing a lot of those uh, unwholesome habits. So we don't need the restraint so much because we haven't even gotten close where a lot of that habit energy has gotten triggered. So we can use those positive ideals and... Uh, and what that feels like when my body and mind aligns with friendliness, aligns with gentleness. Like when we walk on the sidewalk, just to be sensitive, there are ants on the sidewalk. You know, it's not a big deal for me to avoid. Or whatever. When we're gardening, you know, sometimes it's like, I garden like slash and burn. <laughs> just like trying to get it done. As opposed to, there's all these living creatures, including the plants here. And I might have to do some destruction, but like being there, being gentle, being sensitive while I do it is a different experience. So just that positive value. And then the last level of sila is a more of a effortless, it's really the direction we're going where there's just a general powerful sense this heart is trustworthy 
the qualities that are now active in this heart, this mind, are trustworthy. I don't need to be concerned about hitting somebody with my words or my thoughts or my fists. Right? Because we really have that sense, feeling into the qualities that are there in the mind and the heart. This is a trustworthy heart. So sila then becomes effortless. We're just trusting the goodness that's already active, actively shaping, moving in the mind. And we just appreciate that the heart can be trusted. You know how it is, like sometimes we're just in a really good place and generosity is very natural and kindness and not, like I mentioned last week, the two allegiances, like I'm just here to survive or I'm really here in this sort of harmonizing, generous, taking care of everyone, not neglecting myself. So this is another thing you might share in your small groups tonight. These three levels and what you've learned, like have you noticed that capacity of restraint or the protective power of the positive, like some ideal for yourself that you, that you aspire toward, that you keep in mind, that you sense is possible. And in that way you keep watering it, strengthening it. And then those moments of effortlessness This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.